Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is John Shannon. John has seen and done it all as a sports broadcaster, be it via television, radio, or even podcasting. He's most well-known for producing Hockey Night in Canada, including Coach's Corner and the Satellite Hot Stove. John was also able to successfully make the pivot from behind the camera to in front of the camera, shape-shifting continuously over his nearly 50-year career to not only survive, but thrive. Evolve or die is his credo, and not surprisingly, he also chose it as the title of his recent best-selling book, Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Welcome, John, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm great, Andrew. Thank you for asking um, I'm in suburban Toronto, uh, enjoying the Stanley Cup playoffs like I do every year. <laughs> like you do every year. And talk about an absolutely timely opportunity to tap into John Shannon's unique perspectives. It is now confirmed that for the 30th straight season since the Montreal Canadiens won in 1993, the Stanley Cup champion this season will again not be a Canadian-based team. In fact, of the five remaining U.S.-based teams that will make up the Final Four, there's no Boston, no Chicago, no New York, no Detroit. We've instead got teams from the hockey hotbeds of Sunrise, Florida, Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, and one of Dallas or even Landsakes, Seattle. John, please put on three different hats and give us your reaction. Hat number one, as the NHL's Canadian broadcasting partner, Rogers. Hat number two, as the NHL itself. And hat number three, as your typical Canadian hockey fan, Joe Canuck. <laughs> Well, I'm going to change the order a little bit. I'll give you the NHL rationale first, and that will be, listen, we're we're the league of 32 teams, and it's whatever happens in those 32 cities uh, or 32 markets that uh, that we're concerned about, and we can't play favorites, and life goes on. Would it have been great to have a Boston or a Los Angeles or a Chicago in? Sure. But you know what? Over the last 15 years, we've had our share of great cities and great teams, and now it's time for one of the other markets, one of the smaller markets, to have a chance to to raise the the Holy Grail. As far as Rogers goes, I think that there was a giant thud on Friday and another thud on Sunday when you consider that both the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Edmonton Oilers were eliminated. Uh, but at the same time, there are still tons of hockey fans. And what will happen, Andrew, over the next four weeks, because we still have four weeks of hockey to go, over the next four weeks, the ratings will begin rather sluggish. And as the series that starts in Raleigh or in, and we know the second one starts in Las Vegas, those series will start sluggish and then will slowly grow the numbers. And by the time we get to the Stanley Cup final, our hardcore hockey fans in our country will still be interested and it'll be two to two and a half million people watching you know, games one through seven, if there is games one through seven of the Stanley Cup final, no matter what. So in the end, Rogers will do okay. As far as being a frustrated Canadian hockey fan, boy, it's tough. It really is. We are so ingrained in the success of the National Hockey League, and we're so, Canada is so important on so many levels to the success of the National Hockey League. And here we are, 
another year where we can't put a Canadian team name on the Stanley Cup. And for every fan in this country, it has to be tremendously frustrating and just as frustrating for the seven teams too. When you think about what they need to go through, what they do, how they do it, perhaps we put too much pressure on hockey players and management in our country because hockey is religion to us. Uh, But at the same time, if you can do it in Canada, there is no greater place to do it on on the planet. Well, let's deep dive into Canadian fans. John, you're one of the few broadcasters with a truly national perspective. You have literally worked coast to coast Mm -hmm. to coast. Be honest, the Toronto Legends listeners and I have very thick skins. Does the rest of Canada really hate Toronto? Um, No, there's a, it's funny because, you know, all those years that you'd go to Winnipeg and do a game when the Maple Leafs are there or Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver, boy, oh boy, there'd be a lot of blue and white. There'd be a lot of blue and white in those towns. So, one of the things that you'd say in the end is that there's a there there is a lot of jealousy. There is a lot of anti-Toronto big smoke mentality, but there's a lot of closet Leaf fans from coast to coast too. That uh, quite frankly watched or listened on Saturday nights, watched or listened uh, through any which way they can over the years, and whether it was their grandfather or their father their grandmother or their mother, they're the ones that got them to be Maple Leafs fans and they live all over our country. Well, and we're still suffering, but we're we're going to keep going. <laughs> Six years now, John. Let's go all the way back, please. Get the John Shannon story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Uh, I was born in Oliver, British Columbia, which is a little town of about 2,000 people, 13 miles from the Canada-U.S. border, in the South Okanagan, so uh, about 50 miles south of Kelowna, which is the biggest city in the interior of British Columbia. Uh, I grew up in a family of five, my mom and dad and my two brothers. It was as close to perfect as you could ever imagine. You know, my mom and dad were sports fanatics like we were. My older brothers were were really good athletes. Uh, We lived and died for sports on television and on radio. Um, we played lots of sports in, in, in a town that didn't have a hockey arena. Uh, and we were a basketball town in many ways, Andrew, in so many ways when I was a kid, but it was a, it was a really great place to grow up. And my parents were worldly enough that they made sure that we saw and talked a lot about news events and cultural events. And we spent a lot of time in big cities like Vancouver and Seattle and San Francisco and we traveled as a family through the western part of the continent a lot, so it was a uh, it, it was a, a truly fun time in my life. The first seventeen or eighteen years before I decided to, or as my father said, "Okay, you're going to university. Where are you living?" So, <laughs> which did happen? Which did happen when we were kids? It was there wasn't any discussion. What would you like to do? He says, "No, you're." You know, you're, you know, you're going to university in September. Where are you going to? Oh, you're moving out. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting that after going to Toronto, I guess there's no such thing as uh, boomerang children. Um, your your room had been rented out by the time you left, I guess. No, well, I, I I'm, I'm not so sure about that. They liked having me come home every once in a while, but they, uh, my parents were of a vintage of, they, they had lived through the depression and lived through the war. 
and in many ways they, they lived vicariously through all of their children and what they did later on in life. Well, it sounds to me like Ryerson, as it was known at the time, and their excellent RTA, Radio Television Arts Program, brought you to Toronto, is that correct? Yeah, I had, uh, well, in fact, my father was a very practical guy, and living in a town of 2,000 people, he said, well, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a radio announcer. That's what my goal in life was, to be a radio announcer. And he said, well, go ahead and do some study, do some research, and and where we'll figure out where you want to go. And so I, I went, uh, I, my brother was going to UBC at the time, so I went down to the University of British Columbia, and you couldn't do it, there was no internet, right? So <laughs> this is well before the internet, so you went to the the main library uh, at UBC, which was called the Stacks, and you went to the Stacks and you looked at all the calendars of all the universities in North America that offered broadcasting. So I I found some and and I went through them and I the curriculum and and the and the price and and so I came home and I said, well, Dad, there's really only three choices that is as I understand it, is Syracuse. University, which had a, which still does have an outstanding broadcasting program, and for out of state students, it was about thirty thousand dollars a year. Washington State in Pullman, Washington, which was really only about a four-hour drive from my hometown, had a fantastic one, and and it had just changed its name to the Keith Jackson School of Sports Broadcasting, and uh, Keith Jackson, of course, the famous ABC announcer, and it was about seventeen thousand five hundred dollars, both. U.S. dollars. And then I said, and then there's this school in Toronto called Ryerson, and it's 900. <laughs> so I said, so my dad quickly said, well, I guess you're going to enjoy Toronto. <laughs> and uh, But he said, you can't go there right away. You cannot go to school in Toronto right away. You have to learn how to live in a big city. So he made me go to, he made me go to university in Vancouver for a year at UBC in order to learn how to get around on the buses, you know, you know literally learn, learn to live away from home, uh, albeit uh, taking courses and getting credits that could be used later in my, uh, for my degree. Uh, and then I, tra- then I transferred in 1975 to, uh, to Ryerson and, and finished there in 78. Coming out of Ryerson, you began your career as a 22-year-old PA or production assistant for Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah. Why do you look back on that entry-level position so fondly? Oh, because there, first there were, it was, you were involved in the National Hockey League. You were you were involved in the biggest show in Canadian television and in Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday night and in those days, midweek on Wednesdays as well. And you had no worries. There was there's there was no HR issues. There was no budget issues. There was no management requirements. So all you did was you worked hard and you had fun and you were around NHL players. And I was still going to school. You know, I you know I, I really started working at Hockey Night uh, in my second year at Ryerson, so I was really only like twenty at the time. Uh, so I was working on Wednesdays and Saturdays, sometimes traveling even on on weekends uh, throughout the NHL, uh, and then I'd come back to go to school on Monday. So it it was it was just footloose and fancy free. It was just a, a tremendous experience and being around great broadcasters like Dave Hodge and Brian McFarlane and Dick Irvin. Um, I got a chance to, you know, rub shoulders with people that I admired and, and they treated me like an equal. And I don't, I, I couldn't imagine a better job in my life because it was so much fun and had and no headaches to it. You felt, John, that every game you broadcast had three teams, the home team, the visiting team, and yeah. Team Blue. 
What yeah. do you mean by Team Blue? Well, Team Baby Blue, really, and it was uh, and it was Hockey Night in Canada. In those days, Hockey Night in Canada, if you Google it, we used to wear baby blue blazers, um, which were emblematic of you know the the best television show on uh, on the tube in this country. Uh, and and really, what had been instilled in me by the leadership at Hockey Night, whether it be a guy like Hodge or the executive producer Ralph Mellenby, was that we were a team, and it was like playing the team sport, and we were a band of brothers, and we enjoyed our each other's company, and we we felt we won or lost every night, and we didn't lose very many nights, so we had a great time doing that, and and really enjoyed the whole concept of being amongst a a technical group of 20 to 25 and a production crew of another 10 or 12 that made a great team environment. And you walked out of the building as proud as the Maple Leafs or the Canadians or the Canucks, because they were only the three Canadian teams at that point, that um, that w- either had won the game. So it was, it was a special time. It really was. And within that broadcasting team, John, to the civilians such as myself, what is the producer's job? What was your job? Well, the producer, it, it, to put it in hockey terms, uh, the producer's the general manager and the director's the coach. Uh, but in layman's terms, I would suggest that the producer's the organizer. He's the one who is deciding the ebb and flow of of the production philosophy, the editorial, and then is working quick, uh, you know, closely with the announcers to make sure that everybody's on the same page from a from a uh, from a, a a verbal perspective, and then with the director to make sure that we're we're dealing with the right pictures. So, and, and I've always told the story, and I do a little teaching, Andrew. So I I, I tell the story that it's like a bicycle wheel. Is the 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 the, the hub of the wheel is the director, uh, the 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 rubber tire of the bicycle wheel are the announcers, and then the producer is the spokes. And, you know, the hub can turn and the wheel can turn, but they don't turn without the spokes. And so the director or the producer is actually the spokes of the bicycle wheel. And that's how the, that's how a TV show is made. What's so interesting about you is that you kind of moved around that wheel, so to speak. At one point, you kind of pivoted from behind the camera to in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this done against your wishes or how did that happen and how did you end up enjoying it? Well, it, it's it, it went full circle, really. As I as I said earlier, I I really wanted to be an announcer. I didn't want actually, and I didn't want to be a TV announcer. I wanted to be a radio announcer. I was I was a romantic about radio. Still am uh, a romantic of. Can you imagine sitting in your backyard and 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 listening to somebody do commentary from St. Louis, Missouri, or from Atlanta, Georgia, or from Los Angeles, California, and I get to hear them in my backyard. That's To me, that's the magic of the business that we were in. Growing up, we, we were a one TV channel town. Hard to imagine, but we had the CBC. So at night, if, if, you, night, if you didn't like the CBC, what they had on the air, you had no choice but to turn the radio on. And that's when sports were fantastic every night. You could listen to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland and Vancouver and Denver and Salt Lake City. And, and it was that was the electricity of being in the business. So that's the business I wanted to get into. I got, de- I got derailed because I was, I was bossy and I was organized, so they made me a producer. Uh, and so I got derailed for 35 years. Fast forward to 2009, and I leave the National Hockey League as the executive vice president of broadcasting, 
And my college roommate, the kid that I, the guy I went to Ryerson with, is a guy named Doug Beforth, who is now at that point the president of Sportsnet. And he he knew in his heart of hearts that I always wanted to be on the air uh, as an announcer. And and they were at a time in their cycle at Sportsnet where they didn't really have somebody to describe as a league insider, someone who could tell stories about what it was like to sit with Gary Bettman or what it was like to sit with the general managers or the or the in, being in the coaches meetings. And I had done all that in my time over the last 25 years. So I got a phone call out of the blue and they offered the, I thought they were phoning and offering me a job as a consultant to, to teach announcers. And they said, no, 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 we want you to come and be on the air. I thought it was a joke initially and turned them down. Uh, but they, they, he, uh, Doug and a guy named David Aconde, who was his executive VP of, of production at the time, they were pretty persistent. And so I spent the summer talking and negotiating with them and I said, well, I, I don't really want to do TV. And they said, no, no, you have to do TV, but we'll give you some radio too. So that's how it started in the summer of 2009. Well, your other uh, medium, I guess, is now podcasting. Today, you are probably most widely consumed via your five-day-a-week podcast with Bob McCowan. Mm-hmm. How do you like podcasting versus radio broadcasting? Do you feel they are effectively the same thing, or are the platforms truly different to you? Uh, I would say there's probably 80% similarity for me. I, I, I can't speak for Bob, but for me, uh, I think that there's a there's there there's enough stuff on a daily basis that suggests that we're doing the same thing. We're doing it. We just happen to do it in a different location. Bob and I have never been in the... Bob and I, were, for all the years that I did primetime sports, Bob and I were in the same studio every night or every day. Uh, well, we've done almost 700 episodes of the podcast. We've never been in the same room. So technology allows you to do that. But at the same time, you, you know, the thing about a podcast, and, and to me, podcasting is the audio version of a DVR or a PVR, depending on what country you live in. And so you can play it back when you want. You know, it's it's on-demand radio. So you have to really guard yourself at times, Andrew, to say, well, we're going to talk about, for instance, on this Monday, we're going to talk about the Maple Leafs and their disastrous departure. Yeah, but the guy might listen to the podcast next Friday. So how do you, how do you stay current and yet keep it evergreen? Those are those two challenges in podcasting. So we try to do a little bit of a happy medium. Now, we're, we're very fortunate. Our podcast is also heard on a daily basis on Sirius XM every night at 6 o'clock. So we have an obligation to be current to a certain point. Uh, but at, the, at, at, at other times you're saying, well, I, we really want this story about this situation or this scenario to last for two or three weeks. But the demand for podcasting is in many ways just exactly like uh, is exactly like radio. There, we have a regular core of probably fifteen to twenty thousand listeners every day that uh, want to hear our take on everything, or Bob's take particularly on everything. And then, um, and then we, then we go from there. You know, combined, the two of you have over one hundred years of sports broadcast. It just means we're old. <laughs> but you know, Bob is a reasonably prickly guy. How have you managed to become the perfect sideman and co-host to the Bobcat? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if he would agree that I'm the perfect side 
you know, sidekick. But, you know, one of my strengths as a producer in my previous life was managing talent. (laughs) And, And so, and Bob's a very talented guy. Like, he's as talented as the broadcasters I've ever worked with. And I've worked with, I think, the best in guys like Hodge and Ron McLean. And Bob's right in that in that wheelhouse. And I I think I know how to manage talent. I think that there's always, if, if, if you talk to any announcer that's worked with me, they will say, well, we knew where we stood. He helped us get better. Uh, and we were always treated fairly. And those are three things that I think they're important when you're dealing with announcers because sometimes they can be egotistical pricks. Yeah. Sure, and and listen, I'm not. I don't need to pump your tires, John. So I hope you take this as as a true compliment. I think the reason you're such a great co-host is you literally are able to talk about any and all sports. You're up to the minute on all the latest news and issues. Your guests on the Bobcast are from all over the sports spectrum, but you're able to talk intelligently with them. How do you keep up with everything? Are you literally consuming sports highlights and news twenty four seven? Yes. Yes, uh, but it's a it's a love and a passion. Well, the name of the book's Evolve or Die, Andrew, and so you know you you ha- I I learned a long time ago as a producer how to research, how to talk, how not to be afraid to talk to athletes. You know, lots of people don't want to talk to athletes; they don't know what to say to them. You know, you have to be able to walk into the dressing room or walk into a locker room and be able to talk to people. So, so that's part of it, and and you know, asking questions and gleaning information. The internet's changed a lot of this too in the last twenty years. Uh, so you can read on stuff, you can see highlights. I am a, I, I, as I talked about, I am a, a radioaholic. I love listening. I and I can I listen to talk shows. Um, I love television that way. I watch I watch sports. I watch sports constantly, and it's not just hockey. I, I do watch the—I like the NBA. I like the National Football League. I like the CFL. I like Major League Baseball. I like I like the hardcore—I like the, the main four sports. I like college college basketball and college football. I, I like it all because I, I'm a fan of athletics and of sports. I love golf. So from, from that perspective— it's very easy for me to say, okay, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to be able to—and and, and then— Put it in a way that you can ask questions so that people feel smarter. One of the things that I think is, and, and I, you didn't ask this question, but I, I will answer one anyway. One of the things, one of the things I, 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 I think is my strength in all of this stuff is that I, I'm not a former player. Uh, I can't even skate. I can't skate. Uh, never could. So, so I think as a viewer... I think as a fan, how do you want to communicate information to people at home? Not to other coaches, not to other athletes, not to your friends that are in the dressing room, but how do you best communicate to the person watching at home? And and understand that not all of those people have the same knowledge of the sport that you do. So how who do you communicate with? I'll give one other. I know one of your biggest things is recognizing the strength of the period. It's your favorite form yeah. of graduation. Isn't it fantastic? It is so important to know when to stop because most broadcasters 
don't know when to stop. Their mind starts going so fast. They're, you know, they're talking at 60 miles an hour. Their brains go at 80 miles an hour. And then they're going to start talking. And then they realize, I don't know how to finish this sentence. I don't know how to finish this sentence. And you have to find a way to finish the sentence. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Nelson Millman, Evan Solomon, Wendy Mesley, Ted Wallishan, and Terry O'Reilly. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. John, you've talked about one of the challenges is when you're dealing with people and interviewing people and one in particular strikes me as of great interest. One reason your podcast with Bob is so popular is your access to primo guests. So I want to know how you deal with someone like NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. You don't want to piss him off. You want him to come back on your show. You want to continue to have access. But you know he's full of BS when he tells you, and as he recently did on your podcast, that it's actually quite exciting to everyone that the Arizona Coyotes are stuck in a 5,000-seat arena, or that the real estate deal with Ottawa, which is estimated to going to be north of $1 billion, it's not because of any real estate deal. You've worked for Gary. You've worked with Gary. You, know, you respect him greatly. How do you break through the approved talking points that you typically get from him or someone like him? Now, that's a great question. And you and usually when people say that's a great question, is they're biding their time to figure out what to say. <laughs> here's here's the here's the the magic of it. You get to a certain point in your life where you can say, "Okay, I don't believe you." I do agree that when you are asking, particularly in this day and age with the podcast world, you're not asking for eight minutes. You're asking for an hour out of somebody's busy day. So, and, you, and yes, you're right, you do want them to come back. But you have to be able to take them to the line, let them answer the question the way they want, and if there's something that they say in, the, in their answer that you can, you know, grasp onto and say, I don't, you know, what do you mean by that? And, and the, your example about Gary is a perfect one, because I remember in that podcast we did about 10 days ago, I said, so what if the vote, what if the vote doesn't go through? And Gary's answer is, I can't answer that. Or I don't want to answer that. Something to that, that effect. Or I can't contemplate that. And then he admitted, that is the question to ask. <laughs> so we, we, we pushed it to the point where we got, we got the answer we needed to get, but we also wanted the person at home to be able to understand and infer what the desperation is. You know, part part of part of my world is like I don't necessarily always believe in getting opinion. What I want to be able to do is elicit an answer so the viewer, whether it be on YouTube, whether it be on on XM, or whether it be on on all the platforms, can make a judgment themselves. Sometimes it's not for me to make a judgment or Bob to make an make a judgment. We are trying to put it on a platter. For the for the listener or or the viewer t to make the judgment, and they can make whatever judgment they want. They don't have to agree with me. I mean, I'm I, I I'm actually my friends. I'm actually quite an opinionated guy, but I choose to be fair in my questions. I choose to make sure that when we do an interview with somebody, 
particularly the important people in the world, that we're, talk, we're trying to get their opinions on the air. Not trying to get my opinions on the air. We're trying to get their opinions on the air. Some people don't necessarily understand that, but that's fine. That's their prerogative. I got a broadcasting question for you that is a crazy question that may see you hang up on me. But please, John, hear me out. <laughs> Could we get away with no announcers during hockey games? Why can't I just enjoy the game as if I were at the arena? I can already see what's going on. I don't need someone talking over the sound of the sticks and the puck and the players. And when there is information required, for example, why are they going to video review, the broadcaster could simply display info on my screen. Could we do it without announcers? I think that's a brilliant idea. No. Thank you. No, I, and, and I, I, I tell you what, in the multi-channel universe, I don't know why it hasn't been contemplated. You know, why couldn't uh, Rogers on, you know, Sportsnet 360 put the game with the international sound? It's it's a really good idea. It's a really good idea um, because you don't have to you don't have to add. In fact, you're, you're, you're what you see. One of the things we're trying to do, I think, in the industry now is give the viewer choices. Give them, you know, whether it's the Manning cast in the United States with you know Eli and and Peyton talking about the football game, you know Steve Dangle doing his stuff on YouTube with 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 Sportsnet stuff. But there's something to be said at the time with the sophistication of the fan that they can, they can actually choose whether they want to hear announcers or not. I think it's a really good idea. You know, I, I you know, in the United States, you have the SAP button, you know, Spanish alternate programming light, uh, you know, and, and you wonder why, why can't why can't I just mute out the announcers and then uh, and then just listen to the, the sights and sounds of of what's inside the arena. I think that's a great idea, Andrew. I really do. I'm a, and by the way, if if uh if I ever get another job to produce a uh, to do a uh, to, to do playoffs or do I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to steal that one. Oh, please do. I'm not going to credit you either. I, I cuz no, the best okay. some of the best stuff I ever ever did was I stole it from people. So it's good. Hey, there's there's no new ideas. No, that's right. I see that's now that's funny you say that because one of the things right now is that ESPN is doing it, and Rogers is doing it too, and that is they've brought back the Telestrator for the studio. Kevin BX is doing it, and I think it's called the BX sketch. Ryan Callahan does it in the uh, in the studio for ESPN, and it's called the Calistrator. And, and people are saying this is this is the newest thing. This is the greatest thing. Well, Howie Meeker did it in 1972. And Howie Meeker was the the, the innovator uh, as a broadcaster. And it, what I find really funny is that I think that if we took Howie's commentary and put it over top of Kevin's artistic work, you'd say the same thing. And I think if you took uh, Kevin's commentary and put it over Howie's artistic work, it would say the same thing. So, uh, the, again, nothing's ever new. And in our business, it's it's all been regurgitated or copied. John, you have a chapter in your book called Grapes. Let's yeah. talk about Don Cherry, yep. his passion and loyalty, unquestioned, and my sense is that you feel we don't really know the real person, Don Cherry, behind the personality he displayed for us so many years on Coach's Corner. Who is the real Don Cherry? Because as you assert, he is not the two-dimensional character we saw on TV. You no, know, he built, you know, Don built a brand. Don built something that um, that he thought he could communicate with. He did it with the help of my old boss, Ralph Mellaby, 
you know, you know the famous story is that Don did coach's corner on a Saturday night and he started to sound like an announcer and Ralph walked into the room and said, what was that? What was that? And he said, and Don said, well, I thought. And Ralph slammed his hand on the desk and said, that's your problem. Don't think, just do. And that's what Don, that's what Don's whole aura became. Now, everything was pretty choreographed um, for, for all those years. And Don has, Don has a human side that we just don't see. Uh, very often, you do see it when you when you're around him, when you're at his house, or when you're traveling with him. Is he opinionated? Absolutely. Does he have certain opinions you may not agree with? Absolutely. But he's he's a he's a loyal old sod. Uh, he believed in team, and that's that's why my loyalty to Don Cherry exists to this day. I, I, I and and trust me, I don't always agree with him, and I I think that that's that's part of what's happened in not just in hockey or whatever Don went through, because I wasn't there when he went through it, but in society is, is that if we don't agree with somebody, now we're supposed to say we don't like them. Well, that, that, that's, that's not right. I don't, agree with, I don't agree with my wife half the time. That doesn't mean I don't love her. And oh, come on, let's, let's be realistic and practical about this. Don has pretty much disappeared from the public as far as the average fan is concerned. Do you still keep in touch with him regularly? And, and do you sense any interest on his part in re-entering the hockey media world? I have probably not talked talk to Don as much as I should in the last 12 months, but I have been over to the house a couple of times in that period of time. We actually live not far apart, probably a half a mile from each other. Uh, but Don has a place uh, up north that he goes to and but when we do talk, we we talk about the game. We talk about people. We have mutual friends. I I think that Don is. I think Don's, and I I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think Don's happy in his life now. The pressure that he put on himself all those years to perform on Saturday nights for seven minutes, that began first thing Sunday morning, and that he would work through. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, talk about it Friday, and then perform on Saturday. I can't only imagine the angst that he would go through in order to be, to try to be that performer, because that's what he was. He was a, he was a performer. And, and sometimes, sometimes he crossed the line, unfortunately. Let's talk about Dave Hodge. Yes. Skeeds before quiet quitting became a thing. On March 14, 1987, Dave Hodge was hosting Hockey Night in Canada when his CBC bosses decided they were going to cut away to the news at 11 p.m. instead of continuing with a Flyers-Canadians game that was headed into overtime. Disgusted with the decision, Hodge stated, that's the way things go these days in sports and at this network. We'll leave you in suspense. Good night from Hockey Night in Canada. And irreverently flipped his pen. Asked to apologize later, he refused, and thus his time at the CBC was over. He was replaced the following week by Red Deer radio veteran and Hockey Night in Canada freshman Ron McLean, who has remained a fixture of Hockey Night in Canada ever since. John, is it true that after the pen flip, Dave Hodge left Maple Leaf Gardens at 60 Carlton Street, walked to the Weston Hotel, where the first person he phoned was John Shannon? True. Yep. And his question was, before he said hello, is he got a job for me? Because I had been, I had been fired by Hockey Night the year before for going over time uh, in a Calgary-Edmonton playoff series. And I had been hired subsequently by Carling O'Keefe and Global to produce the rival network of hockey. And we were about to start our, our uh, 
our playoffs. And uh, Hodge said, do you have a job for me? And I said, yeah, we do. So we hired him. I hired him on the phone. That's uh, I was at my house in Calgary, and he was at the hotel in Toronto. He had moved to Vancouver, uh, Andrew, that uh, I think the previous summer. Uh, and Ron had already come to Toronto to be the midweek host and then fill in for Dave when he didn't want to travel east uh, on on hockey night. So it was uh, it was a, a natural progression for the network to to have Ron fill in, and then Dave knew in his heart and hearts he couldn't go back. And so he he joined us, and we hired uh, we had Dan Kelly, who was one of the great voices of the game, John Davidson, who I had worked with for a few years, and had he had gone back to New York, uh, and Hodge as our announcers. Well, thirty five years ago, we're still talking about it today. Well, I mean, it's one of the uh, you go on YouTube and you can still find it. He didn't. Ex- I, I I can I truly believe he didn't expect the pen flip to be on the air. It was just that the. Uh, the production team didn't dip the black fast enough. <laughs> Let's talk about your book. You swore you would never write a book. Then along came the pandemic, a whole lot of free time. And last fall, Simon & Schuster published Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Was the whole experience for you better, worse, or exactly as you expected? Well, when you know, when you consider uh, two things. First of all, I, I like talking. Uh, and when you do live television or live radio, it is done and gone. Uh, the book is exactly, uh, writing a book is exactly the opposite, which is why I vowed never to write a book. Uh, it, it just, it contradicts, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's work because none of the other stuff that we talked about is work. Everything else is just a passion. Everything else is just, it's fun. I've had fun for I mean, I'm 66 years old. I've had fun for 66 years. Writing a book is work. So <laughs> so I had been approached probably five times. For, it, it, it probably started the year after I left Hockey Night in 2000. Um, would you consider writing a book about Hockey Night? No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, and so it's every once in a while, a phone would ring, would you consider? And then Finally, I, I got a request from somebody, would you come and have lunch with the guys from Simon & Schuster? And I said, well, I'll do anything for a free lunch. So uh, we went, uh, I happened to be downtown one day, we went for lunch with them, and by the end of the lunch, I had not agreed to do the book, but I had warmed to the idea. And I had already, in my time at Sportsnet, I had been doing some simple writing, uh, for uh, for the website, I was probably running, writing a thousand words a week, once a week, and they said, "Well, we like what the, we like the way you write your stuff for the for the website." And I said, "Well, because that's just off the cuff. That's just s- stories that I've, I'm dealing with on a daily basis about what's going on in the National Hockey League." I did do a little bit more writing during the work stoppages. By the way, the old story is: if you work for the league, it's a work stoppage. If you don't, it's a lockout. So, and I've been ingrained with work stoppage for so many years. So, and I, and I, so I would do some analysis of what was going on with the negotiations between the players and the union, uh, the players in the league. So they said, no, we like the way you're right. So I said, well, okay. So I finally, you know, I finally agreed to write the book based on the fact that the advance was good enough. (laughs) You know, I got a good advance. And, and you know they they treated me got they treated me well, so now I'm in the and I'm trying to figure out okay now I now I'm stuck I've got to write this book I don't 
I still didn't really want to do it, but I've got to write this book. And then I got inspired. A friend of mine told me to read Bob Iger's book. Bob Iger, who's the president of Disney, back being the president of Disney. And so I was in Mexico on a holiday and I read Iger's book in two days. I was just glued to it. I had met Iger once in my life in Calgary during the 88 Olympics. I was glued to this book and I liked his approach to the book because it wasn't necessarily always about him. It was more about philosophy of production and how you manage people and how, you know, in a big company like Disney, you know, how you could move things forward. And so I liked that approach. And so if there was anything that was the the blueprint for the, the way I wrote my book, it was probably Bob Iger's book. And th- then we flew home. We literally flew home from Mexico on the 15th of March. And the world shut down the next day. So all of a sudden, now I had no excuse and I had, so I needed, to, I needed a reason to get out of bed. So, yeah. so I decided I'd try to write a thousand words a day for, you know, a hundred days or whatever it was. And it, I, I hit roadblocks, I hit ups and downs, but in the end it was, it was pretty close. The final book was, was pretty close uh, to what I, what I did uh, initially in my outline. So hopefully people enjoy it. Well, people will enjoy it. I enjoyed it. Your book has tons of stories, including tangling with the Edmonton Oilers GM, Glenn Sather, mm-hmm. plucking Ron McLean out of obscurity as a red deer, Alberta weatherman, forcing Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to crawl across the Montreal Canadiens dressing room so he wouldn't get free airtime during an election campaign, having to whisper in the ear of the aspiring but ill-prepared color commentator, Bobby Hall, through an entire broadcast mm-hmm. because the late Hall of Famer was so ill-prepared that he didn't even know the names of the players he was watching. Dear listeners, you will have to go out and buy John Shannon's book to enjoy all those stories. But one thing that really surprised me was how honest and candid you were about what it means to be fired. Not to amicably part ways, not to have your contract not renewed, not to be dismissed, to be fired. Yeah. It's something that we have all experienced, but the term being fired is so rarely actually used. John, why was it so important to you to be so frank about the experience of being fired from your job? Um, I, I think it's because I, that's the way I deal with people in the first place. And I couldn't, I, 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 you know, I'm a blunt person. I'm a blunt person to my friends and I, and I, I had to be honest with myself. I mean, we, I could have, I could have easily written around it and said, we agreed to part amicably. Well, we didn't, we didn't agree to part amicably. Uh, there's lots of people that fire me that I, I I I will never utter their names, you know. People get mad. It's not wrong to get mad. You know, it, it's 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 learning how to manage your anger, which becomes the the key thing. I mean, trust me, the people who really, and I've never said this to anybody else, Andrew, but it's been a while. People who I will never forgive, I refuse to put their names in the book. I mean, you know, Gary, Gary got rid of me, and and later on, it was the greatest thing that he ever did for me, because a he treated me very fairly after the fact, uh, and I've had, I've been able to fulfill a, a a childhood dream of being on the air, so I mean, I, I mean, we evolved, right? But the people that that trust me, the people that I truly have will never forgive, I refuse to put their names in the book. 
Well, it's the way things get handled, and obviously it's it's emotional for everyone. But I think this speaks back to, and I'm going to guess this is the advice you give to up-and-coming broadcasters. You really talk about focusing on three principles that are most dear to you. Friendship, loyalty, and honesty. Uh, absolutely. And I am proud to say that the, with those three key words, that I, I lead a full life, I lead a happy life, and I have great friends, friends that have been with me through thick or thin, um, and I think appreciate when I tell them the truth. And some of them are still in the industry, and I, I will text them or talk to them after shows and say, I didn't like what you did there. And why did you do that? And here's what you should have done. I still do it. I still coach. And, and when you depersonalize it, uh, it can be effective, correct? Yeah, because, you know, underneath all of what I talked about, I think, and even today, Andrew, is, is a lot of common sense. It's, it's pretty simple. I, I lead a simple life. I, I, and I, my philosophies of broadcasting are much simpler than most people. I want the guy at home to, or the woman at home to get on the edge of their chair and say, wow, that was the coolest thing I've seen today. And if you can do that three times in three hours, You've got them for the next day, and they want to, and they'll, and they'll want to come back. They want to be part of it again, and that's what we're trying to do. We're not, we're not trying to espouse a philosophy of, you know, F one in deep. We're just trying to make them have fun, enjoy it, and come back again tomorrow. Well, speaking of the woman at home, you wrote in your book that your wife Mickey does not like the media business. In fact, she hates it. <laughs> she hates it. Yes. Yeah. She, or as she would say, "Why would anybody buy this book?" <laughs> John, uh, you've been great with your time. Where can we best consume John Shannon today and any projects in particular you're uh, working on down the road? Uh, well, I mean, there's always a project coming. I just can't tell you about it. Um, but uh, but there's, uh, you know, the Bob and I do the podcast every day, Sirius XM, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific, uh, Monday to Friday, uh, on all the platforms, uh, you know, Spotify, Apple, Google. Uh, we we do fifty two minutes of content on it on a daily basis, uh, and we have fun doing it still. Um, and uh, not only that, I I do lots of work uh, regionally across the country. I'm on uh, Global TV in Winnipeg, CGOB Winnipeg, doing uh, Jets coverage. I do Oilers coverage on uh, six thirty Ched, uh, and I do some. Uh, I still do some work for uh, for the Oilers uh, TV on Sportsnet, uh, probably twenty times a year, which I have fun doing. Uh, and then I'm on a regular uh, situation in Vancouver on on Thursdays with Don Taylor and Rick Dollawall on their show. So I'm I'm as busy as I need to be. I'm happy doing it. And now, Andrew, the one thing is you don't have, most of the time you don't even have to get on a plane to do it. That's the best. You've gotten rid of the bad part and you've kept the good part. <laughs> yeah, indeed. The book Evolve or Die: Hard Won Lessons from a Hockey Life is published by Simon and Schuster. Available wherever you get your books. John, thanks for your time today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the playoffs and your summer. Cheers, Andrew. Thanks for the time. Been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of John Shannon, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.